Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. Hello and welcome to another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. It's Richard Lummis, and I'm here with Tom Fox for another discussion on how to improve our leadership skills. We believe leadership is a skill which can be improved with study of both good and bad practices, and we try to draw interesting examples from many sources, including history, fiction, film, and business writing. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today we're going to discuss the uh, race for the South Pole. Uh, We had discussed um, Henry Worsley's effort to cross the continent of Antarctica unaided, uh, which ended in his death. Um, but now we're going to go back and discuss some of the, uh, the earlier explorers uh, in the, around the turn of the 20th century. Where would you like to start, Tom? So, um, uh, also, uh, when we talked about Henry Worsley, we talked about um, Ernest Shackleton. Yes. And we focused on the endurance, um, leadership lessons from his endurance uh, trip. But it turns out that uh, Shackleton was uh, a very important part of the uh, entire race for the pole. So uh, I thought maybe uh, I would ask if you could describe uh, both um, the English guys, Shackleton and Robert Falcon Scott's uh, attempts to the pole. And I was going to uh, highlight some of the uh, or bring forward some of the highlights from Raoul Odmundsen, the um, Norwegian who actually got to the South Pole, and then let's see uh, maybe what leadership lessons we can draw. Okay. Um, uh, Scott was uh, a British uh, naval officer who had been chosen basically for his total lack of experience, um, which is an interesting way to uh, select leaders. Um, The thought being that it was such a novel Adventure that you needed someone who had no experience and no bad habits. Um, didn't turn out too well. Um, he and Shackleton, um, who was one of his uh, subordinates, um, had a falling out during this, and Shackleton was eventually sent home with scurvy. Um, Scott's leadership style is, is often criticized. He was a sort of by-the-book naval officer. But... Um, his reputation uh, initially in the, uh, in the early 20th century was quite good because he basically became a martyr to uh, polar exploration. Um, his reputation suffered, it went down in the 70s, 60s and 70s, uh, probably reaching its nadir as an incompetent bungler, um, which I think is unfair. Um, he... He comes in for criticism because he did not use dogs. He used Siberian ponies, and he attempted to use a, a, a snow tractor, uh, an early form of, of snowmobile, which turned out not to work. But I think it was a, a, a very far-sighted. It was 1912, um, and it, it was predecessor to both the snowmobile and the tank. I think so. So the, um, I guess one of the things that uh, I really had not fully appreciated was the scope of Antarctic uh, exploration, and really starting in the end of the last century. Uh, and um, I have to admit, I uh, sheepishly, I would say, I've, I knew nothing about uh, Raoul Edmondson, except for the fact that he was the first guy to reach the pole, and he beat Scott by some uh, 17 days. Um, 
he went to the Antarctic in a Belgian expedition of uh, 1897 to 1899 and uh, on a ship called the Belgia, of all things. And uh, what happened to that ship certainly presaged what happened to Shackleton and the Endurance as it was locked on the ice. It was locked on the ice for over a year. It wasn't crushed like the Endurance. But um, Adamson learned some very valuable lessons uh, about uh, men being locked up in uh, uh, dark quarters and not eating properly. And the uh, Adamson always said that it was the doctor who literally saved them because he... Um, killed uh, animals for meat, which I have to assume were penguins, uh, at some point, uh, and that was able to counteract the scurvy, which uh, uh, ran rampant on the crew because they'd run out of fresh vegetables, obviously. So, um, but that was just one journey, and the first um, time Scott went to the Antarctic was with when he had Shackleton as a crew member, and I believe his first officer was in 1902, and I had not been aware of prior expeditions, uh, and then... Um, uh, I think you're going to get to Shackleton's uh, Nimrod expedition, uh, where we touched on a little bit last week, where uh, he, he had to turn back. Um, but uh, so uh, and, and so it just showed the continuum. And then, of course, the uh, 1912 uh, uh, expedition of uh, Robert Falcon Scott and Almondson's uh, expedition of 1911 um, also. But I think we're going to uh, see that they built upon each other. Uh, there were some significant lessons learned uh, by all parties. Unfortunately, some of them didn't apply the lessons very well. But I saw really a continuum of exploration that I had not fully appreciated before, and that many you see many members of the crew uh, come back again, uh, both for the Norwegians and for uh, the English. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it is. The um, apparently it just it really does get in your blood. You know, they say that once you've you should uh, wait to see Antarctica until later in life because after you've been there you. Nothing else will compare. So, um, the other thing about Scott's expeditions was the the, the state of the science. Um, you mentioned scurvy. Uh, nutritional science was really in its infancy at this time. Um, they they did not understand necessarily the caloric needs of Arctic exploration, and that's uh, one of the reasons Scott and his his. Uh, uh, Companions died was they were basically undernourished. And that's something I think that's also what killed Worsley at some point. Right. Um, but on the uh, the winter before Scott's uh, attempt to go to the pole, there was actually a, an expedition to go collect emperor penguin eggs. The emperor penguins uh, lay their eggs in the Antarctic winter, um, and so these three. Um, Three uh, officers, one a man named Cherry Gerard, and then two of the others were the ones who died with Scott. Um, but Cherry Gerard wrote a wrote a memoir about it, and it's absolutely horrifying. The uh, in the in the cold and darkness with no GPS and trying to navigate and uh, sleeping in reindeer skin sleeping bags. Um, it's uh, it's quite a story, and they did come back with the eggs and. They sat unexamined for years in the British Museum. So the uh, one of the things that struck me about Edmondson was um, he did not originally want to go to the South Pole. He wanted to be the first to reach the North Pole. And he took, um, took steps to achieve that goal. And indeed, uh, as we'll explain a little bit later, his uh, literally his trip 
to the North Pole, he rerouted uh, to the South Pole when he found out that uh, Perry had reached the North Pole in uh, 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 2009. But uh, before he um, made his uh, dash to the Pole and his expedition to the South Pole, he'd gone on an extensive three-year voyage trying to secure the Northwest Passage. And that is a passage from the Atlantic Ocean through the north uh, out to the Pacific Ocean. This had been a mariner's dream for hundreds of years and had never been done. And really what I found, Richard, was in many ways uh, it, it wasn't so much that this uh, adventure uh, got into his blood, which drove him. It was actually gave him the technical expertise to succeed uh, because he uh, lived or he wintered on uh, Prince uh, William Island, and lived with Eskimos, and he learned three critical uh, elements that he utilized uh, in his dash to the South Pole. One was that up until this time, uh, outer garments had been made of wool, and that uh, this was not available to the Eskimos. They used animal skins. And it turns out that not only animal skins warmer, but they were a water repellent. And um, so he adapted his outerwear uh, and his tents to reflect uh, animal skins. The second was that we, we talked about uh, a little bit, uh, but we'll talk about a little bit more, which was the use of dogs and dog sleds. And he actually learned this from the Eskimos. This was not something uh, uh, native to Norway. Um, uh, the skiing was, and we'll talk about that. But uh, he really uh, learned that uh, you could travel much more efficiently over the ice with dog sleds. And then the third thing, which seems so self-evident now, um, that uh, but recognizing that this was the age of exploration, was igloos. And that it was uh, they were thought to be the primitive home of a primitive people. Well, the reason they were the primitive home of a primitive people for thousands of years is they worked and they insulated. And so that uh, when the temperatures dropped significantly for uh, Admundsen on a couple of his uh, nights, they abandoned their tents and constructed igloos, and this helped them to survive. And so uh, one of the lessons that I think we're going to learn from this or, or explore from this is that um, uh, if you build upon uh, the lessons of others, it can make you a stronger leader going forward. Um, then on the, uh, his trip to the South Pole, I found really interesting as well. Uh, it's a rather famous uh, story now, but he, uh, he had decided about six months before his trip to not go to the North Pole and go to the South Pole. He told his first officer and one other person. The crew didn't even know, the men that he had hired to go with him. And they were going to sail to uh, Madeira in the uh, eastern Atlantic and then around the Horn, uh, go up the west coast of the United States, and they were going to attack the North Pole from the Bering Sea. Uh, so that was the route. When they got to Madeira, he um, told the crew that, well, no, actually, we're going to the South Pole. Uh, and uh, he actually um, telegraphed uh, Robert Falcon Scott and told him, too, because he knew of Scott's mission to the um, go to the South Pole and try to be the first to get there. Uh, he arrived in Antarctica in, uh, the, um, I guess, the late um, uh, 1911 and, um, excuse me, early 1911. And he built uh, a depot, uh, a, a major camp with a uh, wood frame building. And 
after the winter set in, which begins in March in Antarctica, they actually worked on improving their gear. So they tested out their boots, they tested out their sled, they tested out their goggles, and they tested out their skis and tents and even some of the cooking equipment that they brought to see which would work in the increasingly hostile environment, yet they were at a base camp where they could uh, seek shelter if they needed it. And I found that uh, that part certainly uh, was not something that Scott had done. And um, it was really um, uh, propitious for them to do. Uh, the other part that uh, probably doesn't get enough play is that uh, Odmundsen was a great uh, and a passionate skier. And that's a tradition in Norway. And that he was able to adapt that love of skiing into an actual <coughs> efficient mode of transport across the Antarctic ice. What they learned was in their uh, uh, winter they spent uh, of the danger of crevices, so they extended out their skis hmm. so that they crossed a crevice, they wouldn't go down. <clears throat> the other two things <clears throat> that I learned was that he actually made two attempts to go to the pole. And the first attempt was in September of uh, 1912, and I frankly wondered why he would leave in the end of the winter uh, when the information we'd studied about Worsley, uh, who walked across, was trying to walk across uh, uh, this, uh, Antarctica and had walked to the pole was, you know, they left really in the, the most mild time, uh, December, January. Mm-hmm. And the uh, September attempt was too early and they had to turn back. And um, it's always been written that there was a conflict um, with the other men. There were three other men, excuse me, four other men with him. Uh, it's not clear if there was a breakdown. Uh, someone had a mental breakdown. It's not clear if uh, Admonson's nerves failed him, but there was cr- pretty clearly a very large conflict. And so on his second attempt, uh, which he started in October, uh, he had a new crew with him to, to make the run to the pole. And as they made their run to the pole, um, I thought it was really interesting because they, they built markers. Mm-hmm. called uh, ice carrots every three miles so that uh, they could utilize uh, those on their return. And it turned out to be quite propitious. They made 15 nautical miles a day. And they, um, uh, by December 8th, uh, they had surpassed Shackleton's uh, record of going south, farthest point south from the Nimrod ex- expedition. And they reached the pole on December 14th. And, um, but... Scott reached the pole, and that wasn't the trick. The trick was to get back. And this is where these preparations became so uh, important, because on the trip back, they didn't have to figure out where to go. They just followed these cairns. And so they, they had a route uh, to follow. Uh, up, up until this time, they had been going about uh, 15 miles a day and then, then uh, uh, resting um, for the rest of the day. But what they found was that they could uh, actually rest for six hours and then go another 15 miles. So about halfway back, they increased their rate to uh, 30 miles per day. Hmm. Um, They had uh, uh, in, I think they had six depots that they had built the year before of foodstuffs. So not only was their load lighter going out because they had to carry less food, they had food provisions in these depots. So to your point on the food, they were very well stocked. And indeed, they had budgeted some 110 days for the trip, and it turned out that they were out and back in 99 days. Um, I read some really interesting quotes that I just I had to, uh, to write down here. So a woman named 
Stephanie Barshinsky said, Admonson and his men reached the pole due to a combination of superb planning, long experience with sled dogs, skis, and impressive physical stamina. A woman named Diane Peterson said, a practical and experienced professional, he carefully planned and applied all the lessons he had learned in the Arctic. But I'd like to leave the final word to Admonson himself, which he wrote in his book of this journey to the South Pole. I may say that this is the greatest factor, the way in which the expedition is equipped, the way in which every difficulty is foreseen and precautions taken for meeting or avoiding them. Victory awaits him who has everything in order, luck, people call it. Defeat is certain for him who has neglected to take the necessary precautions in time. They call that bad luck. And when I read that, I was really struck with something we talked about in the first episode of this podcast about the movie 12 O'Clock High when the uh, bad luck squadron. Yes. And they claimed that uh, the reason they lost uh, too many, so many planes was that they had bad luck. And uh, here Admondson uh, makes clear the same thing that uh, Gregory Peck made clear in that movie, which is the inspiration for uh, this podcast series, that there is no bad luck. There's bad preparation. There's bad planning. Um, and that uh, probably was the greatest difference between Scott and Admondson, uh, That, And I really had not fully appreciated how Admondson had done that. Uh, but he did this through pr- a very detailed planning and very uh, detailed execution of that plan. And all of these steps that we laid out, the, the physical stamina, I'm going to give him that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I got to give him that. But the... Uh, but the rest, the, the logistics, the transport, the fuel that they took, um, the, the obviously the use of the dogs is critical, but the use of the dogs allowed them to kill the dogs and eat them. Yes. So there was nourishment. <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, the markers, I have not fully appreciated the markers, how important those were uh, as well. So um, really lots of uh, very interesting. And um, when you read the... Um, when I read the account of Odmanson, um, I don't want to say it was te- it was almost technical, but it was almost textbook. Yeah. Uh, he planned it and he did it. And um, uh, whether he was temperamentally suited better than Scott to do so, I don't know. But um, he had served in the Merchant Marine, Norwegian, uh, I guess Swedish, and then Norwegian Merchant Marine. So he was not a naval officer and didn't have that sort of uh, locked-in rigid mentality. Uh, You spoke about that in the context of Shackleton. Shackleton was also a Merchant Mariner. Uh, So was open to um, uh, other ideas or at least discussing them with others. Yeah, I think you're right. Amundsen, the years of honing his skills in the the Arctic first and then... uh, and then trans- transferring them to the Antarctic um, are, were one of the keys to his success. Whereas the British seemed to prefer a sort of amateur uh, slapdash approach. You know, try a little bit of everything, um, but not really uh, do it in advance. So um, one of the other things that about Scott that he was criticized for uh, when they found his body, uh, they were still carrying geological samples on yes. their sled, um, extra weight which Amundsen had no use for. His, his goal was to reach the South Pole and get back. Uh, Scott had a hash of goals. Just too much to do and, uh, and, and lack of focus, I think, is, is one of the key lessons here. 
exactly. Um, so um, one of the uh, papers we read uh, said effective leadership requires a clear, clear strategic focus. And that's what I saw in Admonson. You're absolutely right. His goal was to get to the pole. Um, you know, if ponies would have got in there, I'm sure he would have used ponies. But uh, dogs got in there because he had seen dogs in action. He had seen dogs work. And one of the things that uh, he did in the winter months when they were at their base camp, they realized that the runners on their sleds were adapted for the Arctic and not for the Antarctic. So they actually went out and did tests, and they re replaned down. And then they took the shavings and were able to use those shavings and cuttings uh, to create yet another sled, which just stunned me. Um, a smaller indeed, but uh, they were able to basically do practice runs to adapt the sleds uh, and the wood they'd use, the birch wood they'd used. So um, it was a clear strategic focus, and it was clear that, uh, as you said, uh, Scott had way too much going on. Even if he was, even if he had the leadership capabilities, uh, there was just too much going there. Yeah. Um, I guess one of the other lessons we get from Shackleton and the Nimrod expedition when he and his uh, team got, I think, within about 90 miles of the pole. Um, and as you correctly point out, uh, navigation in the in the polar regions is quite difficult. That was, uh, of course, one of the controversies about whether Peary ever actually reached the pole it has to do with his astronomical calculations um, once he claimed to have, get, to have reached it. Um, but Shackleton knew when to quit. Um, they got within 90 miles, and they weren't going to be able to get to the pole and get back safely, and so they turned around. Well, and, and Admonson turned around once as well. Yes. So um, uh, the second point I'd like to, to really uh, talk about, though, is that successful leaders are open to new ideas. And this is a theme that's been throughout this podcast. But the, uh, the Norwegians were willing to consider uh, uh, utilizing uh, new techniques. Obviously, the skis were not new, but the dogs were new. The diet was new. The clothes were new. Even, the, uh, as I mentioned, the kerosene lamps, uh, they decided that the ones they had uh, custom made uh, from England, no less, uh, were too heavy for the tents they were going to use and their uh, carrying capabilities. So they were uh, modified them to make them smaller. And all of these, they, they made a difference. And we've talked about uh, Shackleton and certainly in the endeavor, excuse me, the endurance uh, situation where uh, he did um, consult with others. Uh, but it's not clear to me that Scott really was able uh, to, to do that as effectively. I think that's right. Um, as I pointed out, Scott did innovate in some ways. Um, his use of Siberian ponies was innovative, not effective. Uh, his use of the snow tractor was innovative and not effective. Um, the uh, other thing, though, that for whatever reason, there was some sort of emotional attachment to not skiing. That It was like Worsley, that walking was harder, so it was somehow better. Right. Um, I hate to, to just say that's chalk that up to the uh, uh, we are an English man, but um, uh, maybe maybe it was. Uh, the other thing that I had not fully appreciated was um, Scott took five men to the pole. Um, he had uh, designed his last team to race to the pole, this packed provisions for and had sleds for four men. Yes. And there was kind of a... a last-minute decision to add another man, and, and it really destroyed months of planning, uh, both logistically and uh, supply. So uh, it's, it's not clear why he made that decision, uh, yet uh, he did at the last minute, and it seems to be um, 
something that hurt them at the end. Um, one of the things that Admondson did, uh, as as uh, Shackleton did, was to forge very strong team bonds. And I really would chalk that up, Richard, to their experience as merchant mariners, or merchant mariners, if that's a term. Uh, when you're in a professional navy, as my father was, uh, certainly not as a hierarchical or a stiff upper lip as the British Navy, uh, at least in 1900, uh, but uh, I think in the British Navy and some of the fire prior examples we've talked about, you don't see a lot of flexibility. You don't see strong team bonds uh, because you have such a hierarchical class yeah. system. And um, uh, Shackleton, in the, the very first polar expedition he went on with, uh, Scott, he horrified Scott because he ate with the men. Yes. And that was something that uh, uh, Scott would never do, uh, even though the, uh, and he, uh, Shackleton did that uh, because the, the enlisted men or the men were not receiving as, as high quality of food as the officers. So uh, having uh, strong team bonds in, uh, I think, any situation is, is going to uh, help you out. Yeah. And I'd, I'd like to double back on your point about bad luck because what ultimately killed Scott and his men was they were less than two days march from uh, a depot of food um, but they got caught in a storm so that could be chalked up to bad luck but what it really is is lack of preparation right. and as you pointed out they were moving too slowly because they had the extra man they were undernourished because they had the extra man and not enough food um, it was just a they put themselves in a position where bad luck would kill them. So uh, I really like the phrase, when preparation meets opportunity, luck occurs. Um, but I, I haven't really thought through the negative of that. Uh, where lack of preparation and, and opportunity uh, occur, uh, you have bad luck, uh, perhaps. Um, you know, we've had a lot of fun. I think we've learned a lot uh, from both of these. It's been a, a great uh, research project. And you you gave this quote uh, when we talked about Worsley and Shackleton, but I really would like to end on this, uh, which is reflecting on the abilities of the three leaders. A member of uh, Scott's doomed expedition, uh, Apsley Cherry Gerard, uh, made the following observation. For a joint scientific and geographical piece of organization, give me Scott. For a dash to the pole and nothing else, Odmanson. If I am in the devil of a hole and want to get out of it, give me Shackleton every time. And that really speaks to uh, each one of these men was a great man in his own way. Uh, their physical endurance cannot be questioned. Um, but it uh, doesn't mean that you're the best man for a specific job. Uh, you have to utilize the people with the talents and skills for those specific jobs. Well, I agree, and uh, we do have three examples of different leadership styles here, um, and we can uh, pick out their strengths and weaknesses, which is the point of the podcast. Uh, for now, this is Richard Lemus and Tom Fox signing off from 12 O'Clock High. This is Paris Fox again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.